the rest of us, let's stand together and we're going to pray over 2 Thessalonians. We're going to get into the Word of God tonight. I love the Word. And we're going to learn the Word. One of the great tragedies of the Western church is biblical illiteracy. Western church has just gone. We, we've got, everybody's got a Bible, but nobody reads it. We give them as gifts. There's 30 options of which version you want. But we're not reading it enough. So here, we are not going to be biblically illiterate. We're going to know the Bible. Because to know it is to grow in faith. Amen? So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight that you are the author of this word. It's been inspired by you. This word is God-breathed. And we thank you for it, Father, right now. Open our eyes. Open our understanding. Help us to be people who are aware of what's going on. Watchmen on the tower. Help us, Lord, to have the eyes of Christ, to see the world through His worldview. We thank you for renewing our minds and teaching us tonight. In the mighty name of Jesus, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. And I'm going to remind you this Sunday, I'm going to be ministering on if Jesus had never been born, I want to be sure you, hey, if you know somebody that's lost, bring them. Because this is going to be an eye-opener. It's going to move you. It's going to make you think. It's going to make you realize, I trust, what it would be like if the most important person in the history of the world had never been born. Talk about it's a wonderful life. Wouldn't have been good if you hadn't been born. But what if Jesus hadn't been born? So that's this Sunday. Now, tonight, do you know that a day of revenge is coming? Do you know that the Bible talks about judgment and we can't be politically correct here? You might have heard me on the radio on the way here say, I hate political correctness because it makes us lie. It makes us hold back things that are true. It makes us practice denial. We're not going to do that. The Bible says that not only is God a God of love, but he's a God of holiness because he's a god of holiness then our god is a god who must judge sin he must judge sin now last time we closed with paul addressing the certainty of god quote here's what god's going to do repay with tribulation those who trouble you now there he's talking to the persecuted thessalonian church and he's saying, I know that they're coming against you. I know that they are making life miserable for you. I know you've got your critics and they're throwing you in jail and even martyring you. He said, but the time is going to come when God is going to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. That's as sure as the seat you're sitting in, even more than that. Now, we also saw that Scripture discusses five major judgments of God. You can grab that off of last week's CD or last week's notes. Some already accomplished, that is the judgments, and other judgments yet to come. Now, Paul speaks some advice for his converts in light of all these things. He says in verse 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, if we're not careful, what we do is we, we kind of read the Word of God, we skim read it like we might read a newspaper. I have learned that one of the great 
keys to, to really getting out of the word what God intended is read it slow and think about what you're reading. Read it slow. When you think about this verse, here's a promise. Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven. With what? With mighty angelos, angels. It is a certain future event. And what Paul says is, I want you to rest with us. I want you to rest with us because you need to keep your eye on what is coming and not what is around you. Don't be just focused right here, but always have an eye on the return of Jesus. How did Jesus even endure the cross? It says, for the joy that was set before him. So even while he's hanging on that cross, he had his eye peeled on the joy set before him, which was his resurrection, his redeeming of mankind, his defeat of the devil, his return to set up the millennial kingdom of Christ. And so he says, I want you to rest with us. I want you to keep your mind on these things. Now the word rest is from a Greek word that means loosening or relaxing, as for instance, a watch spring wound too tightly. So he's saying, I want you to, essentially, I want you to chill. Take it easy. Don't worry. Be happy. Okay? Now he's not just talking about labor, that is work. But it has to do with relaxation from endurance and from expectation. Now folks, I want to tell you something. There is a great, great benefit to just sitting back and breathing deep and saying, God's got it all under control. I'm not going to worry about it. Like we say jokingly around here sometimes, the 11th commandment, thou shalt not sweat it. Why? Because God is sovereignly in control of all things. It may not look like it. It may not look like he's in charge of this world. It looks like the devil's run amok, but he's not. The devil's a dog on a leash. The devil is under the sovereign control of God. There are lines he can't cross, and God will never let him do it. Now, Paul says, I want you to rest with us. The enemy may be having his little moment now, but another day is coming, and it's already on the way. And what day is that? The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He will. How many of you believe that? I mean, he will. He's going to be revealed. It says every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn and wail because of him. They're all going to see him. He's coming from heaven. Keep your eyes on the Lord, Paul advises. And realize that though weeping may endure for a night, say it with me everybody, joy comes in the morning when Christ returns. And what an awesome day that will be. Amen? Now look at what the apostle writes here. This is so powerful. I tell you, as I'm studying these things and, and, and getting ready for this, sometimes I just push the Bible away and, and it just it moves on me what I just read. Because look what it says. He's coming back. And how's he coming? In flaming fire. Taking vengeance on them that know not God. And that what, everybody? Read it with me. That obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't tell me there's a bunch of ways to get there. 
You can't tell me there's a bunch of ways to get there. We're in a multiculturalistic, philosophical mindset in this country right now that, oh, it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you're sincere. Oh, yes, it does. Who's going to experience God's flaming fire judgment? Those that obey not what? Come on, talk to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Period. Now, look at this word, vengeance. There's, there's a powerful word. In flaming fire, the Lord is going to take vengeance. Why? Because sin must be judged. Now, for you and I, our sin's already been judged. Where was it judged? On the cross. On the cross, when Jesus looked up and spoke those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he experiencing? He was for the first time in eternity past and eternity future, separated from the Father. Why? Because at that very moment, God's wrath was being poured out on that cross, and Jesus was taking the judgment for our sin on that cross. He took it. Everything we ever did wrong, sinful, that separated us from God, He was judged for it and blamed for it and took the rap for it on the cross. So that when you come to the cross, and that's the only place you can go where your sin was handled, you go to the cross and you say, Lord, forgive me. Then your sin is wiped away, removed from you, as far as east from west. And God says, now your sin has been judged. I made him who knew no sin to be sin for you that you might be declared the righteousness of God in Christ. So we were sinners before the cross, but after the cross in God's eyes, we are the righteousness of Christ. What a great trade. He took my sin, I took his righteousness. So if you're in Christ, your sin's already been judged. But God had to judge it. He had to judge it. If you want to see the ugliness of sin, just look at the cross. Now, if you haven't gone to that cross, God's got to judge your sin. He will judge your sin. And it happens here in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word for vengeance means literally that which issues out of justice. It has to do with the execution of justice. Sin is a crime against God. It's a crime. We were criminals against God in rebellion against Him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinner means a rebel against God. We were at odds with God. We were the enemies of God. And so... God has to deal with criminal activity in his moral universe. He has made a moral universe, and he's got to deal with sin in it. So if the sin is not handled at the cross, it's got to be judged somewhere. So God is executing justice. It's not mere revenge or vindictiveness. It's not personal rage or striking back in passion on the part of God. It's righteous retribution. Sin has got to be handled. There's not a person in this planet who can sin today and, and, and not have it answered somewhere, 
some way, someday, in the justice of God. Those who will face this terrible vengeance are those who are willfully ignorant of God and who have willfully rejected the gospel of Christ. This and this alone is the unpardonable sin. You know, Jesus was uh, doing some miracles and the Pharisees and Sadducees who were Sadducee. I just want to see if y'all were listening. Some of y'all are. Sadducees were Sadducee. You know why they were Sadducee? Because they were Sadducees, which means disconnected from God. And I'm going to let this go. (laughs) Now watch. Um, They looked at him doing a miracle, and it was an obvious sign that he was who he said he was. And they said, he's doing this by the devil. Now what? And Jesus looked at them and said, you better be careful, because all manner of sin will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost will never be forgiven, not in this life or in the life to come. Now, what was he saying? Their very act of blaming his miracles on the devil were a clear sign of their insistence on rejecting the Holy Ghost, touching their heart as to the reality of who he was. They damned themselves by their own words. You know what the unpardonable sin is? It is when the Holy Ghost comes and knocks on the door of your heart and says, He is Messiah. He did die for you. He did hang on the cross for you. He took your sins for you. He wants to come into your heart and you say, No. Don't want it. And you know, the Bible says that people willfully reject Him. They're willfully ignorant of God. Our whole nation is doing that right now. Willfully ignorant. There is an act of the will. I will not turn to him then he says all right that's the one sin that'll never be forgiven not in this life or in the life to come it's those who obey not the gospel of jesus christ who experience that fire now as to god taking vengeance and flaming fire i know that sounds you know kind of medieval and you know old testament and you know kind of mythological and all of that but guess what The Bible reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. And throughout Scripture, God is revealed judging sin with fire. When Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire at the altar, they had no authority to offer what they were offering at the altar. It says in the Bible that, quote, there went out fire from the Lord and it devoured them. And they died there before the Lord. Had they died, fire came out from God and consumed them. Why? Our God is a consuming fire. Paul Paul loved the Lord, but he had a fear of God too. He said, I I don't want to face the judgment of God. I don't want to experience that because our God is a consuming fire. But it wasn't just Nadab and Abihu. When Elijah demonstrated God's power before backslidden Israel, the fire, quote, this is the Bible, 1 Kings 18, 38, the fire of the Lord fell. Straight out of heaven, out of a clear blue sky. And the fire consumed the burnt sacrifice, consumed the wood, the stones, the dust, and licked up the water in the trenches. And boy, they all said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. 
What did God show? I judge with fire. I judge with fire. Now, and of course, when God judged the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Scripture records that, quote, the Lord rained down burning sulfur, fire, burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from, from the Lord. Where did it come from? The Lord. Out of the heavens. And Lot saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. God reached a place where he said, that's it. And folks, he's going to reach that place again. This is what the Bible said. He's going to reach that place again. And he's going to judge with fire. Paul said, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sobering words. God judges with fire. And it's going to be that way when Christ returns. At His coming again, Christ Jesus is going to be covered in the Shekinah cloud of fire and accompanied by the armies of heaven. What a sight. What an amazing sight. Though just one of the angels could smite the earth at that time, it wouldn't take but one, Jesus is going to do it Himself. The angels are going to be there as witnesses and to demonstrate man's utter inability to stand against God and his Christ. This will be the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will execute his own judgment upon a world that spat in his face, whipped his back, crowned him with thorns, nailed him to a cross, and has blasphemed him ever since. See, the world thinks, well, I can make fun of Christ and I can go out there and persecute Christians and I read something, I gotta say it. I read it last night. I said, oh, help us, Jesus. It's Christmas time, I guess that's about right. Johnny Depp. Adds his voice to a song gonna be released in the Christmas season. You know that guy that you pay money to go watch? He's released a song Jesus stag party shows Jesus going to a bachelor party getting drunk at the end of the song he's passed on the floor drunk making fun of thorns on his head making fun of his ankles being tied up um, yeah Jesus stag party Jesus bachelor party and here comes Depp and some moronic group that's playing it with him and it's okay it's open season we can go ahead and say what we want about jesus which is the choice of cowards because they won't write muhammad's stag party right but it's a cheap way out and, and just you know they do things like this and here and i listened to part of it because i ran across it in a news story and, and then i had to turn it off and you know i thought here are so many christians go and pay money to watch this guy and he's blaspheming and mocking and spitting in the face of the Lord all over again. And I know he's lost and needs to be saved, and we've all been there. But, but something in me is just getting so fired up and so stirred up that it just seems to be okay to, to, to mock Christians. when you, can, you, can, you can't mock anything else, but you can mock Christians and mock Christ. But guess what? They've got a real surprise coming. Watch this. Jude spoke of this awesome judgment when he wrote, quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints 
to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. And read this last part with me. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. You've got to be so careful what you mock. You go mocking Christ. The Bible says the day is coming. You'll answer for every word that came out of your mouth. Johnny, I hope you hear this somehow. Next, Paul makes it very clear that hell is real and people are going there. He describes both the reality of the coming judgment and also its eternal nature. Now, I know this isn't politically uh, correct. I know a lot of people are just ditching hell. Don't want to talk about it. Writing books saying that people aren't going to stay there. One of the best-selling books to come out in the last few months. Talked about nobody's going to be kept in hell because love will win. But I'm going to tell you, you're not reading your Bible. Uh, when all else fails, follow directions. And I'm going to read the Bible. Let's just read the Bible. Verse 9, these, and, and do I delight in this? This verse scares me, and I'm saved. I put my faith in Christ. But this verse scares me. These who obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. What kind of destruction? Everlasting everlasting punishment what is hell it is when you are removed from every bit of the presence of the lord can you imagine not being able to experience the presence of the lord forever and the glory of his power here it is the dreadful consequences of rejecting christ are eternal the, the day of christ's glory is going to come at last when he returns and the wicked are going to catch one glimpse of it and then they're going to be banished from it forever. It will haunt them ages upon ages upon ages and ages to come. That's what it says. Now I'm a teacher of the Bible. God didn't call me to revise it, modify it, change it, mess with it. He, he called me to teach it as it's written. And we've got to be honest here. If I was up here teaching Milton, Shakespeare, Homer, any of the books of antiquity, I would be very obliged to say, here's what Homer wrote, or Shakespeare, or Thucydides, anybody, from way back when. All right? I'm going to honestly teach it. I've got to say that the prospect of the hell described here is too terrible for my mind to grasp. The word eternal is ionios. Ionios. And ionios means ages upon ages and ages upon ages. And it's used to describe eternalness. It's used often in the New Testament in 67 occurrences of ion, ionios. It is used to signify something endless. For instance, it's used of God who is eternal in his nature. He never changes. He never experiences any change. He's eternal. Same word is used. Same word, ionios. Same word to describe the eternal nature of God. 
It's used to describe our redemption in Christ. Our redemption in Christ is not temporary, it's eternal. Ionios, that's the same word used. And to describe the resurrection body of the believer. Can I tell you, once you get your resurrected body, you got it to keep. And it's not going to change. So the word Ionios is used to describe God, our salvation, our, our glorified body, all those things as being eternal in nature. Okay? Same word. The use of the word here shows that the punishment in view is not temporary. People are not going to be purchased out of hell as the, the uh, medieval Catholic church taught that if you, you gave indulgences then your loved ones in purgatory, if you gave enough money, as soon as the money dropped into that little tin cup, your loved one was delivered from purgatory. That was the medieval Catholic church's way of raising huge sums of money for their building programs. There was nothing true in it. Once you're gone, you're gone. And the way you leave is the way you stay. Paul also used the word destruction, not just eternal. It means literally ruin. Destruction means ruin. Uh, the wicked then, at the return of Christ, we're told here, will be handed over to eternal, ionis upon ionis, uh, age upon age, forever ruined. Commentator J.B. Phillips asked this question, quote, who can imagine the horrors that will accompany the dissolution of their personality, the gnawing of conscience, the torments of memory, the anguish of guilt, and the terrible knowledge that their doom is deserved, it's hopeless, and it's unending. The, the, the man, the rich man in Jesus' parable about hell, saw his former servant in Abraham's bosom in heaven. And he said, let me, let me go warn my brothers of this place because I'm thirsty and I can't get a drink and, and I am in torment. He recognized people. He could think. He could feel. He could have regrets. He could have concern of others who had not left the earth yet and could be warned about the place he had wound up in. He was fully cognizant, fully aware, fully conscious. That's why it's so dangerous for people in the church to start coming out and saying, well, there's no real hell, or it's not going to happen. That is not what the book says. Who gave you the right to change what the book says? We're either going to teach it or we're not, preach it or we're not. Man, when I got saved, I was sitting in juvenile home, 16 years old, and as I heard the gospel preached for the first time in my life, it occurred to me that I was about to go in front of a judge who knew just a smidgen of what I had done. But as I heard the gospel, I thought, well, the God he's talking about knows everything I've done. The Bible is clear about hell, church. May we never leave that message that Jesus came to deliver us from ourselves and from the consequences of our sin, which is hell, Ionios, forever. The Bible is a sobering book. It speaks of sobering things. Consider this. The Lord's living foes, the Lord's living foes will be assembled before him when he comes. Many of them will be at Megiddo. That's the, the valley of Armageddon. The, it'll be the war of Armageddon where man would annihilate himself if Christ did not return in the second coming. There will be blood as high as a horse's bridle for miles. And Christ will come to stop the worst war 
in the history of the world in the valley of Armageddon and masses of people will be brought before Christ when he returns more of them will be arraigned in the valley of Jehoshaphat and as at the rapture living saints are gloriously changed and caught up to be with Christ so now living sinners will be grievously changed and hurled headlong from his presence Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, iniquity, I never knew you. As the dead in Christ will rise to be bathed in the glory of the rapture, so the wicked dead, when their time comes, will be raised only to be convicted, sentenced, and hurled into eternal ruin in what the Bible calls the lake of fire, a horror which defies description. Why do we preach the gospel? Because of this. See, he wants to give you not only peace now, but he wants to deliver you from an eternal horror. That's according to Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. According to Christ, who talked about hell more than anybody else in the whole Bible. Is there a hell? Yes. Is it hot? I don't know. Is it horrible? I know. Yes. A side note, I know what you're thinking, especially in this day. This is too hard, Pastor Jeff. I, I can't imagine such an awesome judgment. How could a God of love do this? Don't forget, he's a God of holiness as well as love. And sin, as I was telling you at the beginning, must be judged because it's a criminal act against God. I understand your thinking. Let me give you a cardinal rule of Bible interpretation. I'll always remember this. If the plain text makes perfect sense seek no other sense isn't that simple when you read something in the bible if the plain text makes sense don't seek to allegorize it don't seek to twist it water it down dilute it pollute it if it makes sense seek no other sense the text in verse 8 and 9 couldn't be more plain in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. These will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power, period. That's the plain sense. Y'all are quiet tonight. How many of you are glad for the blood of Jesus and for the cross? And aren't you glad the Holy Ghost convicted you on that day when you were living in such sin and drew you to Jesus and had mercy on you? Aren't you glad? Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for His mercy tonight? Thank you, Lord. But now there's a happy flip side to the Bible's message. Say, praise God! Verse 10, when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Paul says Christ's return is going to be horrifying to the lost, but glorious for the found. It'll be a day of splendor unimaginable in contrast to their sufferings. God's people will one day be paraded before the universe to hear the cheers and hosannas of the angels. As Paul told the Corinthians, quote, Our light affliction, which is only for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The angelic hosts of God have long wondered 
about the mystery of God's interest in and His love for and His dealings with the human race. Generally, and the church particularly, Peter told us of their curiosity when he wrote these words. The Holy Spirit, who was sent from heaven, gave them, that is the Old Testament saints, power, and they told of things that even the angels would love to know about. Angels are curious about what's happened to you. One day they will understand the work of redemption. The church will be God's object lesson to the universe of His grace, His kindness, and His wisdom. Now next we're going to find Paul doing what he always did. He prayed. He always prayed. He seems to have been overwhelmed at the magnificence of what he has just told the Thessalonians as to these incredible future events. So he says, wherefore, we always, how often? Always pray for you. Paul prayed not just when he was in a tight corner, but when he was in a bright corner. Not just when times were bad, but when times were good. He prayed. And I'm going to tell you, church, I'm going to challenge you at the beginning of the, of the year. We're going to pray, and we're going to fast some. I'm going to call you to it. You can do it if you want to. You don't have to do it. But I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to, I'm going to try to encourage you to go on a fast with us. And we're going, to, we're going to pound heaven. Because I believe 2012, we're going to have more harvest than we've ever had. I believe that. So we're going to pray, not just when we're in a tight corner, but when we're in a bright corner. And look what he, look what he said. He said, he, he's talking about, he's praying about the nature of their calling. And he says, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. What an incredible calling we have indeed. To be the vehicle through which the universe of created beings will give glory to God in admiration of Jesus Christ when the Lord returns and is glorified in His church. And then secondly, he prayed about the name of the Christ. And I'm glad I'm closing out this chapter with this verse because this is so beautiful i want you to read this with me would you that the name of our lord jesus christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of god and the lord jesus christ now look at that name the lord jesus christ he's already assured them that jesus is going to be glorified in his saints but then he says you know you're going to come with him straight from the rapture with the judgment seat behind you and the apocalypse in front of you Every spot, wrinkle, and every such thing is going to be gone. We're going to be like his bride, fit indeed to sit with him in heavenly places, able to bask in the fierce light that beats upon his throne. And one way to hasten that glorious day is for his name to be glorified in us now. You know that God's will for you is, and me, that God would be glorified in us through Jesus Christ. He said, this is my prayer for you, that God will be glorified in you. The people will look and go, wow, look at what he's done in their life. Now, twice Paul gives his full name. Can you say it with me? Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit never wastes a word, not even a comma. So what does it mean? Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is his sovereign name. It carries the idea of ownership. Jesus said, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. I am your master, and I'm your Lord, and I own you. 
You're mine. In that way, he's Lord. And you don't make him Lord. You just realize he's Lord. You don't go, one day I made the Jesus Lord. No, one day you woke up and realized you better submit to the Lordship already there. Now, Jesus is his saving name. Lord is his sovereign name. Jesus is his saving name. It is derived from Jehoshua or Joshua, and it means Jehovah the Savior. The angel instructed Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins and the consequences of sin, which is hell. Lord is his sovereign name. Jesus is his saving name. And Christ is his sufficient name. Christ is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. Christos has the same meaning, deriving from Creo, meaning to anoint. The name Christ embraces all of our needs. The name Christ takes care of all your needs. All of them. Watch this. In the Old Testament, three people were anointed for the office or an office in God the prophet the priest and the king as the Christ Jesus is the Lord's anointed one as such the Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him at his baptism this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and he was anointed but what was he anointed to be prophet priest and king the three offices of the Old Testament era that were associated with anointing were climaxed in him. He was a revealing prophet, first of all. Never a man spoke like this man. Never. He was a righteous priest after the order of Melchizedek, says Hebrews 7. And he is a returning prince. He is a revealing prophet. He is a righteous priest. And he is a returning prince. Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that emphasizes his power. Jesus emphasizes his person. And Christ emphasizes his position. And every need we've got, spiritual, physical, mental, you name it, it's all met in the name Christos, Christ. No wonder that Paul saw in this name the guarantee that all of God's purposes concerning him and us will be fulfilled. Can we just lift our hands? Let's stand together, can we? Next time, we're going to be looking at the apostasy and the apocalypse. And we're going to meet that man of evil, Antichrist, next time. But let's lift our hands right to him and say, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, Lord, that every need we have tonight is answered in that name. Prophet, priest, king. Thank you, Lord, that by your mercy and grace we stand here tonight with hands raised, washed in the blood of the Lamb, redeemed from destruction, filled with your Spirit, and our judgment was left back on that cross. Thank you for judging our sin on that tree. 
and making us the righteousness of God in Christ. We praise you for it. If you're thankful, just give him a wave offering tonight and just say, Lord, thank you. Lord, we bless you in Jesus' name. We bless you in Jesus' name. We bless you in Jesus' name. Here I am to 